0: That is absolutely true. And not just for kids. God loves you and he loves me. The Bible tells us so. Let's begin with that all-time favorite, John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world, and that world includes you and me from the oldest to the youngest, from the richest to the poorest, from the sharpest to the very dullest. Black and yellow, red and white, all are precious in his sight. So God loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 35 through to 39. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. All of us, every single one of us, need to love and be loved. The God in whose image we are created is described in 1 John chapter 4. God is love we are created to love and be loved in return but some of us may question our lovability because of the rejection of others the crushing circumstances of life past failures what we perceive to be unforgivable acts committed. As a result, our love tanks are empty. You may be running on fumes. Autopilot. Just going through the motions. As I was thinking about giving and receiving love this past week, an old C.S. Lewis quote came to mind. Love anything and your heart will certainly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the coffin or casket of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable irredeemable. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Wow. If that is true, it seems Jesus, God dressed in human flesh, lived a recklessly vulnerable life. The text we are going to examine for the next number of weeks reported Jesus demonstrating the depths of his love for his followers. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 13. Notice the end of verse 1. John chapter 13, verse 1, and the final phrase. Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, loved them to the end. This morning, we'll be focusing our attention on the first five verses of John chapter 13, where we will see that this love of Jesus expressed and overcomes several deterrents. And then puts itself on display in a remarkable and absolutely unexpected way. And folks, that's good news, really good news, for people who were were created to love and be loved in return. Please stand with me for the reading from God's word this morning beginning at verse 1 of John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would, be, would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper... The devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from the Father and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. It is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you, should, that you also should do as I did for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But, is, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me, receives him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, you are a gracious and merciful God. You have taken the initiative to disclose yourself in the Word made flesh. Jesus, born as a babe, wrapped in cloth and laid in a manger. The reason for the season, a time to look back celebrating Jesus' birth and a time to look ahead, anticipating his return. But you've also taken the initiative to ensure the word was written down and preserved so that we have reliable copies of your self-disclosure to listen to, read, study, memorize, and on which we can meditate, a word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And so as we come to this episode in the Apostle Paul's account of the life and ministry of Jesus, teach us, we pray, about yourself. As well as ourselves from your perspective your plans and your purposes give us ears that hear and eyes that see may we have the courage and strength to believe and obey by the power of your spirit for your glory father we ask in jesus name amen jesus loves me this I know. Chapter 13, verse 1, the Apostle John sets a chronological marker. John places this episode, if you notice in verse 1, before the feast of the Passover. Now the Passover feast was an annual festival instituted by God so that the Israelites would never forget his miraculous deliverance from Egypt. After 430 years of captivity or bondage, God delivered these Israelites from the Egyptians through the Red Sea to freedom. At, ec- at the end of Exodus chapter 12, in the beginning of Exodus chapter 13, we can read the details of God's original covenant or decree, Passover decree, given to the nation of Israel. The Passover was actually a a festive occasion celebrating God's miraculous deliverance of his people back in Moses' day. Following the Passover, immediately began seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Only later, Would Jesus' disciples recognize the irony in this event? This joyous occasion was actually anticipating or pointing to the death of their Messiah, Israel's long-awaited Messiah. I do want you to be aware that there is a controversy brewing or stirring around this Chrono-, chrono... timeline. <laughs> Presented here in John when it's, tri- when it's uh, compared to the, the same timeline in the Synoptic Gospels. There's all kinds of debate. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a different approach to this final week of Jesus' life. Let me just say that It does present some difficulties, but not impossibilities. And personally, I believe that John's chronology does harmonize with the accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There is no contradiction. For those interested in pursuing some study on their own, I'd recommend Gary Berg's commentary on John, which is part of the NIV application commentary series be a great place to start. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, adds some some sobering reality to to John's chronological marker here in John chapter 1. Listen to these words. In just a few short hours, somewhere between 15 and 18 hours, our Lord would be suspended between the earth and the sky. As the sin bearer for all mankind. Before the sun set again, he would breathe his last tortured breath. Verse 1 helps to paint the picture. Set the stage. Establish the context in which love overcomes deterrence. Look again at the end of verse 1. Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, loved them to the end. The Greek word translated, the end, could mean the end of his life, or... It can also mean to the uttermost or eternally. But who were his own? Who's he talking about? Who did Jesus love to the end? Well, certainly, at the very least, he's talking about the 12 men that were stretched out around that table in the upper room, participating with him, the 12. In fact, the New Living Translation Bible reads he had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth and now he loved them to the very end. But perhaps his own has a longer reach than just the 12 men around the table that night. Remember John chapter 10? The I am the Good Shepherd chapter. Verse 14 reads I am the Good Shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Verse 27 My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus, the good shepherd, having loved his sheep, loved them to the very end, to the utmost, eternally. So Jesus loved those who were stretched out around the table in the upper room that night. But he also loved those who would believe or become disciples because they believed in their message. And having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Telos, that's the Greek word used here. To the uttermost, eternally. Revelation chapter 22 Verse 13, Jesus claimed, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the telos. Jesus' love for his own is a forever love. Jesus, having loved his own, loved them to the end by overcoming distractions or deterrents. I see at least four deterrents that confronted Jesus in this passage. Four things that could have prevented him or discouraged him from loving his own to the end. And he was aware of them as well, because verse 1 we read, Jesus knowing, and notice verse 3, same phrase, Jesus knowing. There is a deterrent to be identified in each of these first four verses. Perhaps we'll, as we study them and uncover them, we'll find ourselves relating to these deterrents that Jesus encountered back in the very first century. Look again at verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world Love them to the end. Folks, it's Thursday night. Remember how Kent Hughes described this moment in history? In just a few short hours, somewhere between 15 and 18 hours, our Lord would be be suspended between the sky and the earth, bearing the sins of the whole world. Before the sun set again, he would breathe his last tortured breath. Jesus had the finish line of his earthly life clearly in view. And he was aware of every agonizing step would be required as he moved toward that ultimate point of suffering. Because he was God dressed in human flesh. Nothing in the next 15 to 18 hours would catch him by surprise. Nothing. Talk about an inconvenient time. That's the first deterrent. Timing. Jesus, in his final hours, chose to give one final proof, a concrete expression that would demonstrate the depth of his love for these followers. At a time when when it would have been been so easy to become self-absorbed, to withdraw, To push the people away, even those closest to him. To be preoccupied with his own life, what remained of it, and his immediate circumstances. You know, come to think of it. Genuine, intentional expressions of love are always inconvenient, aren't they? They cost us time, money, energies, all things that could have been focused on attaining my goals, realizing my dreams, ensuring that I reach my destination, deterrent number one, inconvenience all about timing let's move on to verse 2 during supper the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot the son of Simon to betray him now when I read this verse almost seems like it's out of place kind of an afterthought that was slipped into this narrative this story of the life of Jesus. But John, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, doesn't want us to forget that Jesus is aware of who is in the room. The one who would betray him. Judas, who spent two and a half years living and ministering in close proximity to the Messiah. God dressed in human flesh, has put himself in a place where the devil can use him in what the devil perceives to be a checkmate move. But let me be quick to add, the devil's involvement here does not in any way minimize Judas's culpability. He is completely responsible for the choices that allowed the devil to turn him into one of his operatives. It's really not all that unlike Adam and Eve, is it? In the garden, at the fall. The devil then disguised as a serpent, exercised his influence so that Adam and Eve chose to disobey God by eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the results were catastrophic for them and for all of God's creation. Jesus in Mark chapter 14, verse 21, expresses his perspective on Judas. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe, this is Christ's judgment. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Wow. Judas would be held accountable for the part that he played in the accomplishment of God's sovereign plan. And I use God's sovereignty intentionally here. God can use all kinds of means, people, and circumstances the good, the bad, and the ugly to accomplish his plans and purposes, even today. But still, Jesus, having loved Judas, loved him to the end. So much so that the other disciples could not identify him as the one who would betray Jesus on the basis of how Jesus treated him. I find that absolutely astounding. Formidable opponents is the second deterrent that Jesus' love overcame. Two are named here the devil and Judas. You know, you and I, we can find ourselves on someone's personal hit list. They're the ones who will cross the street to avoid us. They may be as sweet as honey on Sunday, but let's be real. We know that we're not on the same page. It's easy to, in times like that, to to pull out our verbal assault weapons, slander, behind-their-back criticism, gossip, put-downs. It all comes so naturally. And yet Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 but I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you folks Jesus not only preached it he lived it Judas was in the room that night and he loved them to the end to turn number one inconvenience number two formidable opponents. Others can make loving people even more difficult. Let's look at verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. There's ever a person who didn't need to love people it was Jesus. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things in his hands. The New Living Translation reads, Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything. Eugene Peterson, in his interpretive translation, offers this. Jesus knew that the Father had put him in complete charge of everything. Let me ask you, have you ever been in charge of something? How did you treat your subordinates? I remember working for a construction company. Cynthia and I were between churches at the time. That's what we call it. Vocational ministry. Between churches. What we were looking for, waiting for, seeing if God would open up another local church ministry opportunity where I could serve as a vocational elder. The founder of the company, he was still there. But for the most part, he had handed over the day-to-day operation to his daughter and a son. His daughter looked after the kind of the sales and, and the rental side of the business. And the son, he was overseeing the construction side, which, you know, as far as I could tell, was doing quite well. The son would have been my peer at the time. A young man. and He had a reputation. Being the guy who would Tell employees, regardless of age or experience, when they had too many questions or suggestions, you're not paid to think. Just do it. That's not how Jesus operated. Not at all. Not only did he have authority over everything, he knew from where he had come and to where he was going. And absolutely nothing could prevent him from reaching that destination. After all, he was God-dressed in human flesh. Remember, Jesus exchanged with Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, on that During his um, trial, just before the crucifixion, John chapter 19, verse 10 and 11. Just prior to Pilate handing Jesus over to the Jews to be crucified. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? do you know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Jesus knew he had been given authority over everything. He knew where he had come from and he knew where he was going. And yet that did not deter him from demonstrating the depth of his love for his followers. Deterrent number one, inconvenience. Deterrent number two, formidable opponents. Three, self-sufficiency. And I would say that It's an expression of the world's trinity. We have our trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know what the world's trinity is? Me, myself, and I. The final hurdle is found in verse 4 and 5. Got up from the supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel with which he he was girded. Did somebody just hit the pause button? Did you notice that in the narrative? How it slowed to a crawl. As John describes every small detail that is taking place once again relying on the ancient sources describing life in the first century gary Berg provides this description this was a world where roads were dusty and sandals were worn daily the task of foot washing was so menial that according to some jewish sources Jewish slaves were exempt, and the job was kept for Gentiles. At the very least, all our ancient sources show that foot washing was a degrading and lowly task. When done by a wife for her husband, a child for his or her parent, or a pupil for his teacher, it was always an act of extreme devotion. was unthinkable in this culture for a superior to stoop to wash the foot of a subordinate unprecedented serving is one thing but here we find Jesus posing on the edge of the extreme with a basin tucked under his arm and a towel girded around his waist. And by the way, he spent as much time washing Judas's feet as he did the other 11, those who truly loved him. Standing in the shadow of the cross, Jesus is only doing something that symbolizes a far greater act a far greater act of service, not just for those in the upper room, but for all of us, all of mankind. Notice verse 7. Jesus answered and said to him, What I do now, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand. One of those who was present in the room that night later wrote these words. For Christ died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust to bring you to God. He's put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. I like the New Living Translations rendering of that first part of that verse. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. Safely home to God. Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not Regard equality with God something to be grasped, to be held on to for dear life. But he emptied himself, and taking the form of a bond servant, the lowest of bond servants, in order to demonstrate the depth of his love for his followers. Deterrent number one: inconvenience. Two formidable opponents. Three self-sufficiency, and fourthly, a menial menial task. It's all about attitude. You and I face similar deterrents or obstacles, don't we? Demonstrating our love for others will always be inconvenient. There will always be others who are going to make Loving others difficult by who they are and or by what they say and do. It'll just make it t- tough for us. We will all continue to fight that tendency to look out for number one. Living for ourselves. Acting like we don't need anyone. Being consumed with our own or- own affairs, me and and my family. And it will always be easy to put limits on the expression of our love. We'll go so far and then we'll disappear. Or we'll start pumping the brakes frantically. In Jesus' case, He was prepared to swim the deepest ocean, climb the highest mountain, and cross the hottest desert. Indeed, he was willing to endure death by crucifixion in order to demonstrate the depth of his love for his followers. And Hebrews chapter 3, chapter 1, verse 3, affirms what Jesus had been saying all along. He is the radiance of his glory, that's God's glory, and the exact representation of his nature, God's nature. Jesus overcame these deterrence by displaying an exact representation of God's love. And God's love is steadfast. Have you read Psalm 136 lately? As soon as I remind you, you'll know what I'm talking about. Verse 1 reads, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Verse 2, Give thanks to the God of God's, For his love, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And for the next 26 verses, the psalmist makes a statement about God's person or God's work in his first stanza and repeats the same stanza again and again and again. For his loving kindness is everlasting. For his loving-kindness is everlasting. For his loving-kindness is everlasting. 26 times. It's like a woodpecker. tap, 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 tap. Do you get the message that he's attempting to drill into our minds and hearts? God's loving-kindness. Is everlasting his love is steadfast Lamentations chapter 3 verses 22 and 23 reads the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease for his compassions they never fail they are new every morning great is your faithfulness those verses Formed the, the basis or the stimulus for one of the churches, and I mean capital C Church, so the church including all believers around the globe, for one of the church's most favorite hymns, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Verse 1 reads, Great is Thy Faithfulness. O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with Thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou shalt forever be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All ha- I have needed, thy hands have provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Verse 3, pardon for sin and a peace that endureth thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow blessings all mine with ten thousand besides the lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease for his compassions never fail they are new every morning Folks, I don't know what else I can say. Embrace, embrace God's steadfast love for you. He loves you, and he wants to spend all eternity with you. John chapter 1, verse 12, began with, way back a year and a half ago, I guess. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who will believe in his name. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Love overcomes deterrence. And love displays itself. But you're going to have to wait till next week. We've run out of time. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your steadfast love. You have loved us enough to overcome any and all deterrence and your love has and continues to display itself in our world and in our lives. Help us, each one of us, to acknowledge your love, appreciate that love, and then respond appropriately. May it empower us as you meet our most basic needs one of our most basic needs, to love and be loved in return. And may we always be prepared to pass it forward. Expand the horizons of our hearts so that collectively and individually we'll make room for the people that you want to bring into our lives to be part of our stories. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.